crèche scene. Crèche is a French word, 18th century or so. It is a tableau or a, uh, a model, a representation of the birthplace of Jesus. Now, many of you probably have a crèche, perhaps in your home or in your family. They can be ornate. They can be simple. They can be made of fine porcelain or Lego Duplos. It is always possible that in your house, a particular component of the crush goes missing, like Jesus. <laughs> it's also possible that there, are, um, that there are characters present that weren't there in the original birth narrative. It is possible that Yoda shows up. But here's the one thing, as I've observed crash scenes, here's the one thing that I can't find. You see, there, there may be some debate over whether or not the three wise men belong in the same scene as the shepherds. Probably the wise men came a couple of years later. But that's not what I'm talking about. I have yet to find a single depiction of the nativity of Jesus that has a snarling red dragon. Have you seen one? If you have, I need a picture. I've yet to see. Now, you might be saying, well, no, wait a minute. Nowhere in the Gospels do you find a snarling red dragon at the nativity of Jesus. You're right. The Apostle John does talk about one. In Revelation chapter 12, verses 1 through 6, you can look it up later if you want. There is a red dragon there. A snarling, heaving red dragon set on devouring the child that would come. At the end of uh, this particular section of Revelation 12, John goes on to talk about the fact that this dragon, which he will later identify as Satan, makes war on the people of God. Now, why do I say that? Why is, why is that important for us? I, I, I want to I bring this before you. It is possible that we have, as a people, um, had happened to us what that great uh, Febreze or that air freshener commercial was that made a big deal about going nose blind. Has anybody gone nose blind before? Where there is a smell in your house that ought not be there, but you can't smell it because you smell it every day. And then someone comes in and goes, what is that? And you didn't realize you had a smell. These texts around the birth of Jesus are so familiar. It's easy to go nose blind to what's really being said, to the power of what's really being unfolded. And I want to look to this morning 
at this third office of Jesus. We've been thinking about um, hope in Jesus' coming, and we've talked uh, a couple weeks ago about hope that Jesus comes as our, as our good, uh, as the best, as the ultimate prophet, because a prophet comes to make God known. And that not only did Jesus come to make God known, but Jesus as priest came to make us clean. And that Jesus coming as king comes to make us free. But we need to talk about that, don't we? Because there's a lot that goes on here in these early accounts of Jesus' birth that give us a window into understanding why there was a dragon that wanted to snatch up the king. And why you and I have a hard time with it too. So let's turn to this really familiar passage in the Gospel of Luke, first chapter, verses 26 through 38. I'll invite you to stand as we um, hear God's word read. This is the annunciation, the announcement of Jesus' birth as it is told uh, to his mother Mary by the angel Gabriel. So hear now God's word. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph out of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Beloved, this is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true, and it is given given to us this day in love. Let's pray. Father, we need you to come now, to come and open our eyes that we may see, our ears that we may hear, and our hearts that we may understand. Because this good news, this announcement, this declaration is not for someone else. It is for us, your people. Our desire is that we would see Jesus in him only. And so we make these prayers in his very strong name. Amen. Be seated if you would. There are two things that I want to give some consideration to this morning, and they are vitally important for us. 
if it is true that Jesus was coming to be our king. And even in the angel's annunciation to Mary, the angel says that God will give Jesus the throne of David and he will reign on it forever. We need to talk about kingdoms. Specifically, we need to talk about kings. And specifically in that, we need to talk about who is on the throne. And that's why outline this morning, very simple. Two ideas. One, we need to talk about dethroning the wrong king. And we need to talk about enthroning the right king. First of all, I want to think about dethroning the wrong king for just a moment. If you look at the announcement um, of the angel to Mary in verses 32 and 33, this is where we're going to spend most of our time considering the implications of this. What are the characteristics that the angel describes to Mary of her son that she didn't know she was going to have? And now finds out she's going to have a baby. And this is going to be what his life is like. I mean, have you ever thought about that as a parent? That you would somehow be able to know like the roadmap of your child's future? The angel shows up and gives Mary some very concrete things that, is, that are going to be the characteristics of her son. Look, he, the angel says to Mary, he will be great. He will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. Now, there's a very important prophecy that was given uh, to David that there would be one that would come from David's line that would fully and finally rule over Israel forever. Now, why is that important? Because Israel was God's people. It was God's people in the world, and Israel as a nation was given as a gift to the world to display the glory and the, gl- the grandeur and the splendor of God. And the angel says, this baby that's coming to you is going to be that king. And I want you to consider the earth-shattering reality of this statement. You have to feel the weight of it and wrestle with the consequences of it. That means that there is going to finally be a king. Earth will finally have her king. One king. One throne. Not multiple thrones, but one. There's a perpetuity, a foreverness to his throne. It will have, it'll have no end. Now, because we don't live in a time and a place that has monarchies, um, we are not disposed to really feel the gravitas of this, right? Our leaders get put on ballots. We listen to their platforms. We hear their policies. We look at their pedigree and decide whether or not we want to elect them. Then we look at their time in office and decide if we want to reelect them. And our, our association with our um, elected officials basically works like this. As long as you write laws that don't get in my way or that I can um, happily obey, you do your thing. I'll do my thing. Thank you very much. But that's not, that's not the way a kingdom works. A kingdom works like this. Whatever the king says happens. Whatever the king decrees is done. 
And that's why it was a bad thing for Israel to want a king. What did they want? In the book of Judges, they wanted a king to rule over us like all the others. Why can't we have a king? Judges even says that it was a bad time. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did, did as he saw fit in his own eyes. But they wanted a king like all the other nations, but they weren't like the other nations. So there was a time when God said, okay, you can have some kings. And some of them, they were okay. Some of them are awful. And that's the way it works in a kingdom. It all depends on the character of the king. But there's only one king. And that's the point. There's only one king. Kings are not subjects to votes and democratic process. They rule with absolute authority, without question. There's one throne and one place to rule, one ruler, one king. And as such, if you want to be king, and we're going to get to this in just a minute, and someone else comes along saying that they're the king, one of you is going to have to yield. One of you is going to have to give in. Only one person can sit on an absolute throne. And the throne that Jesus occupies is a throne that demands absolute, unequivocal, 100% allegiance. It is a, um, a commitment that makes all other commitments look paltry in comparison. The claim that Jesus makes is a claim of absolute authority calling for unconditional loyalty. And this this is where it gets complicated. Because this triggers a deep, deep resentment in the human heart. Consider with me the gospel of Matthew, right? Matthew tells us about Herod getting word that a king has been born. Herod says, oh, a king. I'd like to meet the king. And then just for, for funsies, orders that all the firstborn boys under the age of two be killed. Just to make sure that there's no coup to the throne. See, it's easy to look at Herod and go, ooh, he's a bad guy, that bad king Herod going out and trying to kill the babies, right? The complication comes when all is said and done to what the Bible says about us, you and I, as Troy prayed, the ordinary folks, right? We ordinary folks, we say, I would never try and take a, a coup to the throne and knock over the king. Yes, you would. Every day, without fail, all the time. Look what the Bible says. Paul says this in Romans chapter 8, verses 7 through 8. He says this, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot those who are in the flesh cannot please God, all right? So the Bible said that the ordinary folks, the ones who, who just go about their lives and do their thing, are enemies of God. 
There is a hostility in our flesh towards God. There is no way that our hearts want to bow or yield to any rule other than our own. This is enmity. It is hatefulness. This is our natural state. This is the way we are. This is our heart saying in no uncertain terms and in completely unambiguous ways that no one tells me what to do. Now, most of us don't see ourselves as outwardly hostile to, to God. Most of us would, be, uh, would see ourselves as uh, kind, um, as relatively, uh, relatively patient, as uh, loving towards people that are loving towards us, and maybe generous. Um, but the reality is, friends, that this instinct within us, this is, this is more than just learned behavior. We're, we're self-protective, right? As long as we're left alone, we want to do our thing. That's not something you learned. That's who you are. It's our very nature. It's our very heart that is ultimately the problem here. We have hearts that are completely and utterly turned in on themselves. We don't need to learn self-centeredness or self-righteousness or self-absorption. Those traits are in, as innate to you as breathing and heartbeats and blinking of your eyes. And here's the thing. Just as innate are those traits inside of you, they cannot simply be unlearned. How many of you have figured out yet how to stop breathing? Or to stop having your heart beat? How many of you have figured out how to stop the stuff that is innate to you? I want to pose that you haven't. You can no more teach yourself how to stop breathing than you can teach yourself how to stop being self-centered. It's just the way you are. And, and I'm, oh, let's look at this. Here's something that uh, Paul Tripp says. He says, each of us try to occupy the throne of the universe by shrinking the size and the scope of the throne down to a claustrophobic kingdom of one. That's how we try and ultimately rule our worlds and rule the world in which we live, is we shrink it down to a kingdom of one, where ultimately the center of the world, the center of the universe is us. Just look at what happens the next time that something doesn't go your way. And you're fine with God too, to a point, right? We don't want to serve God or neighbor. And so this enunciation of good news and gospel hope is that the angel gives Mary here would instill rage in us as well, not joy. Because the God that is announced here is not a God that we want to serve. Now, in, in our series on Ecclesiastes, I quoted that poem in Victus, right? That I am the captain of my soul. Right? We say, oh, boy, the nerve on that guy. <laughs> Except 
That really is us, isn't it? It really is. So at best, right, if we look at the the arrangement that would make us most happy with God, right, if you look at the arrangement that would make most people happy when they say, oh, yeah, I believe in God, sure. It's kind of a shared power. It's kind of a timeshare type thing, right? Okay? We're happy as long as uh, we'll let God rule so long as he is providing the good things that we want and desire, Right? When he provides love and help and strength and blessing, we're all okay with the idea of yielding to God's rule and direction. But when God brings none of those things and instead brings hardship, allows sorrow, allows unanswered prayers and unmet desires, when God reveals himself to be the God that says, I will not, re- I will not yield and I will not relent, when God allows bad things to happen to good people, at that point, we all say, wait a minute. This isn't how this is supposed to go. Why? Because we want a shared power arrangement. We want a timeshare. When those things happen, We're ready to call off the whole arrangement and handle things ourselves. Thank you very much. Because if we're being honest about it, and look, again, trying to help the nose blind thing go go away here. If we're being honest, we don't want the God for God. We want God for what God gives. Right? Honestly. Honestly. Yielding to God means that he has the right to do whatever he wants in your life and my life, even if that means that on this side of glory, we experience none of the grace, goodness, and blessings that we see our neighbors having. Because God is not our debtor. God owes us nothing. But that, that doesn't sit well. We either want a democratically elected or at the very least a benign and happy ruler who can have the throne just so long as the throne benefits us. Right? As soon as the gifts of God are impediments to our desires rather than fulfillments of them, we get bratty. And by we, I mean I. You can throw yourself in there with me if you want, but I'll just speak for myself. This is part of God's loving kindness, right? This is part of why this announcement that the angel brings to Mary is, in fact, good news. The reason that it's good news is because um, this is part of God's loving kindness. He's not here to be our co-pilot, our administrative assistant, our genie in a bottle, a co-owner in the timeshare of our lives. His throne is singular. His rule is unilateral. Either he gets to be Lord and King of every aspect of our lives, or he is Lord and King over none. 
There is no throne-sharing relationship that we have. And so, and deep down we know this, right? And this is why it's so hard for us to see the wrong king dethroned. It, it, it requires us to admit our innate disqualification to sit on the throne in the first place. I am disqualified to rule over the kingdom that I think I have. Not only am I disqualified, I'm fraudulently enthroned to begin with. There is one God, one king, one ruler, and I am not him. But if the annunciations uh, given by the angel is true, that the child born to Mary is the true rightful heir to the throne and the only rightful ruler and king of the universe There's no way, I want you to hear this, there is absolutely no way that you or I or anybody else is going to bow to him, yield to him, much less worship him unless I have been supernaturally changed from the inside out. Just as you can't learn to stop blinking or stop breathing or stop having your heart beat, you can't be changed by learning new skills. You have to be changed from the inside out by forces outside of you. It's your very nature that's broken. It's your very nature that has to be fixed, and you can't do it, and neither can I. Listen to what Pastor Tim Keller says about this idea of the king. Where is the true king? He said that's the question that's most disturbing to to the human heart. Since we want at all costs to remain on the throne of our own lives, we may use religion to stay on that throne, trying to put God in the position of having to do our bidding because we're so righteous rather than serving him unconditionally, or we may flee from religion, become atheists, and loudly claim that there is no God. Either way, we are expressing our natural hostility to the lordship of the true king, right? And we all flout our resume towards God, don't we? We say, but I have been so dot, dot, dot. I have been so kind. I have been so loving. I have been so generous. I have been so um, whatever, We think that God is thus in our debt, that he owes us. But allegiance to the king means the king gets to do what the king wants. We don't get to call the shots. We're not the ruler. We're the subject. The birth of the child is an insurrection, a full-on assault of the kingdom of God against the enemy of God. The baby king that Herod tried to kill in Bethlehem would eventually be killed at the hands of Pilate and Caiaphas and the religious leaders. But it was at the slaying of the king on the cross that death was defeated and liberation began because the cross led to the tomb and the tomb could not contain the king, you see. So if that's it, right, if the the wrong king, it's not just, guys, it's not just the dictators. It's not just the elected officials that don't do what we think is best. It's not the friends in high places or the friends in low places. The wrong king is all of us, right? 
And what does the enthronement of the right king look like? What does the enthronement of the right king look like? Okay, so the scriptures showing, are showing us that we are, in, we are the enslaved ones, right? What I read in Romans 8 just a moment ago, we are the ones that are, that are enemies of God. We are the ones who don't do anything righteous. The Bible says in Romans chapter 3, for there is none righteous, no, not one. There is no one who seeks God. There is no one who understands. And we say, no, wait a minute, that's not true. Um, there are a lot of people that say they believe in God. Well, yeah, they believe in the God of their imagination, right? As long as God does what they think God should do, they believe in him. As soon as God doesn't do what they think he should do, they no longer believe in him. They hold him responsible. We are the despots. We are the dictators. We are the authoritarians and the autocrats that must ultimately be overthrown. And this is why this is good news. This is why this is good news, because God is the relentless one. God is the pursuing one. God is the one that is not going to try and crush us, but to remake us, to to redeem us, to resurrect us, to change us. Because, and you have to hear this part, because he is a good king and because he loves us. That's the reason that we can trust him and that's the reason that we can yield to him. The promised one, the king, was, will be born. Mary, of course, reasons very logically. She says, I don't mean to be technical, uh, angel, who is scaring me out of my mind right now. That's not exactly what the text says, but it's kind of there. I don't mean to get technical, but my husband-to-be and I are not yet husband and wife. I'm not sure how I'm pregnant. The angel assures her that In this case, no husband is needed for the holy that will be born in and through her will be called Son of God. Verse 35. Consider this from uh, James Montgomery Boyce who says this about the telling of the birth of Jesus. Boyce says this. He says, we often lose a sense of purpose in telling the Christmas story. We focus so much on the birth of the baby and on the sentiment that goes with that story. And there is a certain amount of legitimate sentimentality that that goes with it. That we miss the most important things. Boyce says, actually, actually, the story is treated quite simply in Scripture. And the emphasis is always on the fact that Jesus came to die. The Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, took a human body in order that he might die for our salvation. As he came into the world, our Lord had his mind on his great purpose to provide salvation for his people. But not only did he have that purpose in mind, he was also aware that he was perfectly suited by virtue of who he was. Unlike anybody else, who has ever been born. He was not only man. He was God as well. Therefore, while as a man he could die upon the cross, as God he died in order to pay the infinite price necessary for salvation. At least in part, the reason that we can 
put manger scenes up and be lost in a rush of sentimentality and peace and joy and goodwill is because babies are cute. And we think about that all the time. We think, oh, that's so sweet. An itty-bitty baby. But that's, that's because of thinking about a baby and a, and a poor mom and dad and, and no room at the inn and trying to find a cattle trough to give birth in. That's a sweet story, but it doesn't require anything of us. The cross requires something of us. The empty tomb requires something of us. If the cross is true and the tomb is empty and Christ the King is resurrected and ascended and ruling, that means that either we have to yield to Jesus as the King or we are an enemy of the crown. And that requires something of us, doesn't it? The Bible says that because Jesus died, we died with him to our sin. And when Jesus rose from the dead, we rose as well. Our new life is found in the resurrection of Christ the King. The risen Christ has all authority and power, both in heaven and on earth. The scriptures remind us again and again that when he returns, every eye will see him and everybody will bow before him as the rightful king of the earth. There are not multiple thrones. There is one. There are not multiple kings. There is one. There is either citizenship in the kingdom of God or there is living in opposition to that kingdom. When Jesus returns again in triumph, his royal word will judge all the living and the dead. The gospel that we preach, proclaim, and declare is the announcement of the good news of a coming king. In verse 36, the angel tells Mary that Elizabeth is also with child. And we know that this will be John the Baptist, where John and Jesus will both declare at the beginning of their ministries to repent and to believe, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is the good news of the coming of a great king. The good news is not about us. (laughs) The good news is about the king and his coming, his throne and his rule, his glory and his grandeur. This is the question. How does bowing to this king make us free? Because rule does not sound like freedom. Rule sounds like enslavement. Listen to what John Frame says. He says, never forget that Jesus is Lord and King of all. And will not accept any lesser position. He demands that we do all things to his glory. Everything in accord with his will. His gospel contains law we may say. But service to this king is wonderful freedom. To trust this king is to trust a priest. Who gives us full forgiveness from God. And constant intercession. And to trust this king is to trust a prophet. Whose word is completely true and trustworthy. So why then is it so hard for us to feel free? 
Because, listen, friends, inside every single one of us, there is still a daily and moment-by-moment struggle for the throne. There is still a residual anger inside the most devout Christian that still bucks against the idea that you have ultimately been dethroned. This is what Paul says in Romans chapter 7, right? Paul says in Romans chapter 7 that the things I don't want to do, these are the things I find myself doing. Why would Paul say that? If you track over the course of the Apostle Paul's ministry, his awareness of his own sin, his awareness of his own rebellion, his awareness of this residual anger, even inside him to serving the risen and true King, Lord Jesus, shows up again and again. By the end of Paul's ministry, Paul says, I'm the worst of all sinners that ever was. Dear friends, hear me. Just because you have bowed the knee to Jesus doesn't mean there's not still residual anger inside of you that you are not, in fact, the king and ruler. But here's the good news. There's grace for you, too. There's grace for me. Because God is more committed to seeing you flourish in Jesus than you are committed to running away from Jesus. It always comes back to the announcement, the news, the declaration, the gospel. Thanks be to God that our hope is not in us winning the war that is going on for the throne, but that in fact Christ fights for us and with us in order to subdue us and our enemies and even that red dragon that made war on God's people. Under this king, we are free to live as we were made to live. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. That is good news to those outside the kingdom and good news to those even now who are warring inside it in their own hearts. Your hope and your confidence, dear ones, is not in you. Your hope, your confidence is in Jesus. So there's always going to be a king ruling. And there will come a day when there will be no more perceived competition for the throne. But until that day comes, we walk by grace. Trusting in the prophet who made God known, the priest who made us king, or the priest who made us clean, and the king who makes us free.